Hi guys, this is Doug Fletcher. Welcome back to What's the Hazard. It is Friday. It is. We've established that, and I'm just going to quit quit mentioning the date because I typically get that wrong. So let's just say that it's Friday. We'll go from there. It is the last Friday of the month, so I'm sitting here with my buddy Aaron Cerrone, proprietor of Mid America Martial Arts, uh, coach, teacher, soldier. Uh, proprietor sounds so much better than starving business owner. <laughs> right. like. Exactly. Well, it's good to see you, man. Thanks for being here. Uh, this episode is brought to you, as always, by three incredibly generous individuals. My buddy John Falowich of Falowich Construction Services, Cheyenne Wolford, Custom Concrete Specialists, and Jim Cover down at the Nebraska Department of Labor on-site consultation group. Thank you, guys. We appreciate your support. I do want to spotlight one of our um, small businesses here in town that um, helps support the safety industry. Uh, Kristen Hodge is the owner of Hinco. And Kristen uh, provides all things orthopedic support, so injury prevention, stretching programs, ergonomic assessments, things like that. I have a real, I have a good buddy, um, Aaron Anderson, who is the safety manager with White's Construction, a large general contractor here in town. And you know, he is one of the most innovative safety guys that I've ever met. And he was telling me that after about twenty years with White's, he has come to the realization that there are six key elements that drive their safety program forward, and they have an exceptional safety program. One of those being uh, a stretch and flex program. At the start of every shift, they do a brief stretching, you know, uh, warm-up activity, and also they kind of start discussing what they're going to be doing that day, what the hazards might be, trying to get the mindset, you know, these guys get their mind on the business, you know. Remember that movie Gung-Ho? I do remember remember that. They started doing the exercises in the beginning and all the... You it was know, a Japanese the company, American workers it? are all big, fat, and overweight, and they're like, what in the hell are <laughs> we doing here? <laughs> that's exactly right. Well, I think that's, I'm, I'm sure that's where it originated, man. This is some kind of a Deming thing or something, perhaps. But, <laughs> but um, he told me um, unequivocally that he has come to the conclusion that this stretch and flex thing at the start of their shift not only helps get their bodies warmed up and prepared for the work day, but, but really get their minds on task. And we talk a lot about mindset. So... If you're not doing that, you need to call Kristen, uh, get in touch with her. She can help you develop that stretch and flex program. Uh, it's not like when we were in gym class in junior high school, man. There's a little bit more to it now. Touch your toes. All right, go. <laughs> That's right. Get to work. <laughs> Let's go. Exactly. So you can reach her, Kristen, K-R-I-S-T-I-N, at HincoSolutions.com. Get in touch with her and get going on this stretch and flex. Um, yeah, it's last Friday of the month, buddy, and uh, we're going to talk about leadership, but we have a guest today. You've invited a special guest, and we appreciate every guest that is willing to come and sit with us for a little while, so... Yeah, we we got Dr. Steve Schulz here with us from UNO, one of my my colleagues at UNO, uh, someone who's helped me and mentored me being a new uh, instructor there along the way. Um, Steve essentially started... UNO supply chain management degree program, mm-hmm. uh, and, and has built it to be one of the, literally one of the best in the country. Um, you know, and, and it's, it's me being there and seeing it pretty much from the beginning and, and develop. It's, it's amazing. And it is an awesome, awesome program. Um, we even have a supply chain advisory board where, uh, he's brought in professionals in the area to help guide the degree program. Basically, Hey, what is the industry seeing? What do we need? How can we get these kids ready to hit the ground running out there? So, you know, uh, I invited Steve out with the idea that, you know, we talk a lot about safety on a granular level. Like, what can this shop do better? 
But we all know that they're all part of a larger supply chain. And, you know, I thought his expertise would be fun to have in the conversation Absolutely. today. So Very interesting. Well, welcome. You're welcome. <laughs> Thanks for that introduction, Aaron. My yeah. goodness, I don't know if I should say anything. Well, after now the that. pressure's off me. It's like you know, <laughs> that's right. No, that's fantastic. Thank you for coming. Thank you for joining yeah. us today. So I think a best place to start, and and I would you know butcher the definition myself. You know, Steve, if you could talk about you know for a lot of people, they may not understand what the supply chain really is, or even realize they're a part of it. Right. That's a great place to start because supply chain has been in the news every month now since the pandemic started. Before that, supply chain was sort of a secondary consideration for many people just didn't really think about it, but the pandemic brought it to the, to the forefront. We treat all processes, uh, internal and external, as part of the supply chain. So we have this supply chain umbrella that we talk about that includes everything from operations to manufacturing to support services. People tend to think about logistics and warehouses and manufacturing up front, but we, we cover all of those. And it's really interesting to see how we reach out into different industries because most people tend to focus or think about transportation first and maybe manufacturing next. But we touch all types of businesses. So, for example, the advisory board that you mentioned, I have three hospitals on my advisory board, which was a big learning experience for me. I spent most of my career in industry and in the high-tech industry in particular. So I was hired by UNO to create a supply chain management program. So I created it with this mindset of manufacturing and distribution we posted the information on our website, and the first call I got was from a hospital. And another call from another hospital. And what in the world's going on here? Why, why are these hospital people calling me? I'm a manufacturing guy. Well, as it turns out, hospitals buy a lot of stuff. They have a lot of consumables, which means they buy a lot of stuff every day. They have inventory that is perishable and highly regulated. Some of their materials are hazardous at times of disposal. So they are hiring supply chain specialists to deal with that. And along the way, they want to make sure everybody's handling all this stuff safely. And uh, it's it's become an interesting part mm-hmm. of the addition That's of what we do. That's fascinating, yeah. That, so and, much of their and stuff and is just critical, hospitals aren't necessarily too, right? the most smoothly run organizations either. So. No, but they spend a lot of money. <laughs> sure. I mean, they, they, they make large purchases, so they need purchasing managers to, yeah. you know, robotic arms and those kinds of things and the high-end technical equipment that they purchase. Those are big, long-term commitments that they're hiring our purchasing managers for now. So it's mm-hmm. been an interesting addition to the program. Sure. So, Steve, one thing I wanted to ask, and I, and I was talking with Doug about this, um, you know, like you said, when we talk supply chain, we immediately think movement of stuff, movement of materials. And um, what I like to tell the kids, I, I teach the 3500 class, which for everybody listening, it's basically what we call a survey class. Like my class is a broad brush of supply chain management. And it, every chapter I teach is and could be a course unto itself at some point in the supply chain curriculum. So I kind of fire hose them like, hey, look at all this cool stuff. And it's, we basically talk about everything behind the storefront. You know, everything that makes business happen. Um, and then having been doing Doug's podcast here for about a year now, I've been struggling. I'm like, man, you know what? I don't talk about safety anywhere in there. And, you know, we were in the parking lot talking. I was like, you know, we got these extensive supply chains. Everybody has a supply chain, whether you want to admit it or not, to some degree, some bigger, some smaller. But if you think about the supply chains that, you know, when you think, uh, Amazon supply chains, Walmart supply chains, Target, you know, Home Depot, the big dogs where they're just worldwide. There are people involved in, in those moving parts. And even in the advisory board, we're real quick to get into metrics and get down into the weeds of analytics and how are you applying Kata and this, that, and the other thing. But we never talk about, hey, where's safety fall into this? Like, 
we always want to know is, hey, is your supply chain green and sustainable? Is your supply chain using renewable resources? Is your supply chain not using a sweatshop in Mexico? But we never say, is it being safe? I think, I think you raise a good point, and I'll come back to the pandemic again about raising safety as a concern across the supply chain. You know, the pandemic put us through different phases of stress throughout this whole uh, experience. For, in the beginning, we had the personal protective equipment shortages and shortages, everything else. And, and as everybody was scrambling to fulfill those things, you know, safety should have been something to be worried about. We were focused on protecting people at large, but we also we had people having to go to work when all of this was going on. One of the things that happened during this pandemic is that, you know, we had supply chains that were declared as essential. So we couldn't stop producing food. We couldn't stop producing medical or protective equipment. And so we had to figure out how to keep people on the job as safe as possible in a, in a pandemic that was unfolding. So it brought safety to the forefront for the first time for a lot of our organizations. Not that they didn't have safety programs, but they had a focus on their employees now for the first time. You know, we talk about sure. OSHA requirements and all those kinds of things, and the pandemic now pushed that focus right on to people. I like so that. In, yeah. uh, and I think it's important that you bring that up, Aaron, uh, because as we talk about people, the, the packing plants in our area were a big deal because there was a threat of shutdown, the early outbreaks were there, and you know, UNMC got involved and put processes in place to make it as safe as possible to keep them open. You know what? None of us went hungry. Mm-hmm. We, right. got, we got through this thing. Doug's in a lot of packing plants all the time. Mm-hmm. And one thing we joke about all the time is one of our push, we're creating a program, a work safely program, and it's the idea of getting the safety person to be more of a leader. Before it was, like you said, is the OSHA poster up? Did we do the once a year? Hey, don't forget about this. And then that's it. But now we kind of forced, the pandemic forced our hands. It, it, it has. And we have to keep the momentum going on the focus of people. I think the key point here is that we we have employees that we have to protect every day. The pandemic taught us how important that was. We're also dealing with this tremendous challenge in labor. So we have to protect every employee we have because they're so hard to find. If you have good employees, you want to make sure they're safe and want to come to work and feel safe at work every single day. Otherwise, the the challenge will get worse. We were talking about that last time with the shortages uh, and I wonder what your thought is on this. You know, it's okay. The trucks have to keep moving. Stuff has to keep moving, but I'm hurting on people. I need to get people on the site, you know, the, and there's a tendency to, Hey, I got to get them in, rush them through the onboarding, rush them through the safety training. And I got to get them out there as fast because I, I need bodies on the ground. Right. Right. And that's a really good point. I think one of the things we can learn in, in that type of scenario is where we've had structured onboarding, and high levels of regulatory compliance versus self-regulation. And I, I turn to the transportation industry. So driver regulation is is really set in stone. Number of hours they can drive and everything else, uh, hours of time here and there each week. And their system is structured around that. And it's for, for people, but we don't do that anywhere else. As soon as you get away from the truck and walk inside the building, all of that has gone out the window. So who's, who's minding the store on who's working too many hours. One of the things I worry about right now is burnout. We have so many people that are working so many hours right now. They're just, they're just going to burn out if we don't find a way to improve our workplace. Or or more importantly, when they're working that many hours, mistakes start to happen. They're tired. I mean, studies have shown that people are more dangerous when they're tired than when they're drunk in some cases. Mm -hmm. Um, Like how, how do we fight that? Like how does the supply chain fight just the lack of bodies, but, 
the volumes are increasing, like the need is increasing and I don't have the workers to meet it. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. You know, a few years ago, before the pandemic, we were worried about how robotics and automation was going to take over the world. And what are we going to do with all the people? And here we are. We can't find enough people. Okay, we, we will all automate as many processes as possible. But we have to go back and create safety audits, just like we would do a quality audit for Six Sigma. You know, we, we need to re review our buildings. If you walk through your building today, would it pass inspection, really? And, uh, you know, you, you guys are more expert in this area than I am, but I see some of my organizations on my advisory board place a very high level of, of emphasis on safety. And others, I'm sure we meet OSHA requirements. You know, I don't think anybody's bending the rules at all, but I'm not sure it's a front burner issue. <laughs> Doug will probably beg to differ on that one. But, but to your no point. Probably no participating in your advisory <laughs> board. But there are those that minimize the importance of it, of course, because, I mean, you're certainly, there's a cost benefit to everything that goes into this, these decisions. And sometimes safety is the one that just gets pushed to the back burner, unfortunately. But yeah. that is true. I mean, what you're, what you're talking about is just fascinating to me because that's something that we talk about all the time. And I'm in these facilities, many of them food processing every day, and they are struggling with, um, you know, bottlenecks in their supply chain. They're struggling with people. They're struggling with personnel availability and staffing. So they're working more hours and we I just know this is coming to a head and we're going to have a problem. Yes, I, the, I the trends are not going terrifies in, me in a good direction right now. It, it'll it'll eventually change. I believe we'll get this we'll get through this, but in the meantime, how do we keep safety on the forefront? I mean, we really set the standard very high for many organizations in the early stages of the pandemic. We we need to follow through now. And I think the subject of leadership that you guys talk about here is is really important. I think leadership is critical for that. Who's the executive champion of safety within an organization? That's something that we could ask more, a little more often. Mm -hmm. we, we have people in charge of sustainability and, and green efforts and those kinds of things and corporate social responsibility, but who's the executive champion on safety? Who keeps track of that and leads the charge on that? So that's that, the question. That we poor OSHA asked. guy over in the corner who... <laughs> Just as fighting to find a spot for the poster <laughs> half the time. So that, that's a good question. I want to ask you, like where, you know, in my mind, when you think supply chain, you immediately go, okay, the COO, you know, he's, he's or she, the top dog. That's where it starts and everything trickles down. Where do you feel the ring of responsibility begins and ends? Like, so in a lot of cases, if I'm company X, my supply chain is really subbed out to a hundred different companies but it's still my supply chain and I still have some level of responsibility, but how do I know I'm making sure somebody in Doug's company, who's part of my supply chain, his people are tethering off. And, you know, I, I would imagine that we, we talk about safety, but as extensive as some of these supply chains are, there's daily people getting killed on the job and daily people within my supply chain getting killed or, or severely hurt or catastrophic injuries, like catastrophic incidents, like we talk like, where does my ring of responsibility begin and end, in your opinion, as far as the supply chain? Because, you know, that that's huge. We, we like to say, oh, it begins and ends with the leader. But, you know, there's parts of my supply chain I'm probably not even aware of. Right. I think you raise a really good point. And, and when we talk about this sort of thing with my advisory board and my, and my classes and so on, when we do training programs, we have to think about the supply chain as an entire system. It doesn't stop with the executive, okay? It may start there, but... This whole supply chain that you're talking about, we have to make sure we take that into account. And what we're doing 
in supply chain to start to address that problem. We have a long way to go, don't get me wrong, but we're moving in the right direction where we're starting to audit our suppliers, do on-site visits, assess their workplace, that they meet our standards, you know, and this especially became important when we started outsourcing internationally, you know, uh, living wages, working conditions, child labor laws, you know, internationally are different than they are here. And so we start doing audits of those kinds of things. So we now have uh, supply chain award programs for recognition on how to manage your supply chain and auditing of suppliers is a big part of that program. And so we go out and audit our suppliers annually or quarterly. It depends on the nature of your business, but that needs to be done. Just as if you were doing an audit of your own organization on safety or well-being of your employees, you need to do that on your suppliers mm-hmm. too. The purchasing managers, and I, I, I talk about this in my class and with my uh, industry partners every time I speak with them, that you know you have to be able to uh, impress upon your suppliers how important that is and make that part of the qualification to be one of your suppliers. If they're right. not providing a safe workplace, they shouldn't be your supplier. And uh, Right, it's beyond lead times and price points and, and all the, the numbers. Ab- absolutely. This, this is about building your brand with a system. And even though you've outsourced the supply chain, they're supporting your brand. And if they're doing it great, it makes you look good. But if they're not treating their people safely or uh, taking care of their well-being, it's going to eventually reflect on you. There's got to be a struggle. You know, part of supply chain management is is driving down costs and reducing waste and and making those margins better. And and to Doug's point, safety is expensive. You know, so there's got to be a point where there's a rub. It's like... Yeah, they're kind of maybe shady at what they do, but the price they're giving me, I just, I can't say no to. Like, that's got to be a dilemma, especially if, if safety is at the forefront of the thought. It's like, you know, the almighty dollar sometimes wins in that discussion. Yeah, it's, this is where certification programs are, I think, going to be helpful in that scenario where we have approved supplier programs. We have gold star suppliers to large organizations. We can take that practice and put that uh, all throughout the entire industry across our country, and that you can you can certify your suppliers and make sure that they qualify. You can make it part of the qualification process. If you go into a, uh, a big organization now, you can't even become a supplier without meeting their standards. But we need to be able to spread that out and get a better certification program in for everybody. You know, we have seen uh, a little bit of that in the in in my world, in the safety world. There ha- there have been. Companies that have arisen over the last 10 years or so that do this pre-qualification process, there's one called IS Networld, I believe, Approve, a few of these others that have basically stepped in to fulfill that role. They will do the pre-qualification of subcontractors for general contractors so that you would submit a package of information about your safety processes and things and your statistics, you know, your injury rates, and they would put that all together submit that the this third party would review that and then pass along to the the host or the gc you know these pre-qualified um contractors they could use and and truthfully that is part of osha's expectation while i was with osha we you know the the host employer the general contractor is expected to pre-qualify these they don't they don't do it very often but i think that is starting to catch on certainly the big players do that you know, the Valmonts and companies, the larger players will pre-qualify subs before they bring them on to a site. But uh, we still have a way to go, of course. Yeah, and, and the key there is follow-through. It's one thing to become a certified supplier and, and, and join the system. 
but you have to stay there. And standards change over time. We learn how to do things better. We learn how to do things more safely, and we need to share best practices across our system. So we need to extend what we're doing. So we have to get past just the initial certification, but an ongoing, maybe even in a, a reward or, or an award recognition program that can help them uh, have an incentive to stay at that high level and continue to improve. I mean, the one thing about safety is that we're redefining work today. The type of equipment we use, the types of products we produce is changing every day, which means what? All of our processes change all the time. So whatever baseline we had in for safety a year ago might be obsolete by next year. Mm -hmm. What are we doing to keep up? Because we are redefining how work is being done today. That's fascinating, man. Wow. Yeah, you know, you had mentioned um, automation robotics earlier and, you know, Amazon being, I mean, they just built a massive facility right down Highway 50, a million square feet, and they built it in like 12 months. It's amazing. <laughs> right. But there's very few people in there. Right. It's, it's mostly robotics, and Amazon has their own robotics division now to the point where, you know, they're developing, creating their own robots. You know, from a safety perspective, that scares me a little bit. You know, one of the things in the military, um, as far as aircraft, we've known that the human's been a limiting factor in those aircraft. You know, drones can outperform a human pilot aircraft day in and day out because the machine can do more than what the human can do but we want that human in there for those very reasons right the the sanity check you know is that person in there pulling the trigger and not accidentally dropping the bomb on the wrong spot you know so so for the safety factor but i can see now in a lot of these supply chains and industries everything's moving towards automation moving towards robotics but there's still people mingling in there and, you know, and, the, and the thought of a tractor trailer, a semi, with a few tons of inventory or, or rocks in the back of that thing being fully automated, an autonomous vehicle on the road, scares me a little bit from a safety perspective. It's, it's interesting that the opinions are a little mixed on that one. Right. And, uh, and I see it both ways. The, the automation, both in a distribution center or uh, autonomous driving and autonomous trucks, uh, it represents how work is being defi- redefined today. And by uh, automating distribution centers and, and warehouses and automating our production processes, we are creating a safer environment on one hand because some of those jobs are uh, monotonous. People burn out. They do it day after day after day, and fatigue sets sure. in. And those repetitive use injuries e- are happening. Exactly, right. and so we have those kinds of things that robotics can help to eliminate those kinds of jobs, and 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 that and that's a good thing because it gives everybody an opportunity to do something other than stand on the line all day, and uh, it it's tough. It's a tough job. The same is true for. Uh, autonomous trucks. Now, I, I'm not saying we're all going to have these trucks driving themselves around overnight. On the other hand, what we're seeing already is that when we have these driver assist functions added to the truck, so making sure that the driver's alert, making sure that they're in the center of the lane and those kinds of things, and uh, collision avoidance systems, we've already seen dramatic drops in accidents. Doesn't mean we've got rid of the people, though. Okay, to your sure. point, we still have to have somebody there when, when something unusual happens. And, and somebody has to be there for that. But again, that's going to require a different kind of safety. You know, drivers uh, for long-haul trucks have these specific guidelines to follow. But once we start to automate that, what do those guidelines mean? They're going to have to change. We don't know how yet, but they're going to have to change. I will say I... Uh a comedy of errors getting back from a wedding. I couldn't fly back into Omaha, so I got flew into Des Moines, and I rented a car to drive back. And I rented, it was a new Kia, and it had the driver assist lane following 
technology and it was amazing i couldn't believe how good it was that yep. it kept you in the lane it would actually make the turn for you um if, if you if you took your hands off the wheel it started to flash at you and then hey put your hands back on the wheel but driving just like production uh one of the key benefits of the technology is the ability to address fatigue you know, we have drivers that get tired. We all get dry, tired after an hour or two or three. Imagine doing that every day, every day, every day, as a professional driver does. Fatigue is an issue. And this really takes some of the pressure off of that. What we have to do is figure out how to optimize the human side of that when, they, when they're getting a little bit of relief from the driving function itself. What else can we do to make it safer for them and everybody around them? Mm-hmm. Sure. How, how do you, you know, one thing, you know, like some of the packing plants and a friend of mine works in one of the the, the the beef companies and on those lines there's no way they're ever going to be able to automate it just guys with knives being able to get the meat off the bones and because every cow is a little bit different and you know um, the cuts have to be precise and they change over time and it's something they probably won't be able to automate at least anytime soon but to your point it's very monotonous they're working long hours repetitive use of the joints and repetitive use injuries are happening fatigue happens and you got people wielding these super sharp knives and there's a lot of turnover in these industries. Um, they will, uh, he, he told me that they will hire and fire the same person a dozen times yeah. because no one else wants to do that work. And I imagine that there's other parts of the supply chain industries that, that are experiencing the same thing, right? It's the lack of workers. It's unique talent. Not, not many people even want to do that work. And now we're trying to push people in to do it safely. Yeah, it's, you raise a really important point, and uh, I'll start off with the packing plant scenario since I have the most experience in there. I worked three years three years full time on the kill floor of a packing plant. Did so you? I did on the line. <laughs> Is three, that right? On three years, yes. I, I so you got your hands dirty a little bit. I, yeah, I operated a back saw, so you know, I used to saw dead cows and a half for a living all day yeah. long. And yeah. uh, so I understand the fatigue and, and uh, the strain and the, uh, how that affects employees while they're on a job, on a, a repetitive task kind of mm-hmm. orientation. Having done the same job for three years, you start to understand exactly what we're talking about in these scenarios but even though we can't automate places like packing plants 100 percent the equipment we give our people now is so much better every year even the type type of air knives and equipment and saws and everything that they have to use while they're on the job is improving every year and they're making the job not only easier but safer where we have much more protective gear in place on this so i you know our our accident records can continue to improve there. Don't get me wrong. There's mm-hmm. still plenty of room for improvement, and it is a job. It's, it's still going to be human-centric. We're going to have people-centric for a long time. So safety is just going to have to stay at, at the mm-hmm. top of the list. Have you been up to the Lincoln Poultry Plant up I, in Fremont? I have not been to that one yet. Oh, we should go up there sometime. Oh, yeah. I, I've, I've, you know, Aaron and I have talked about going up there. It's a really fascinating plant. They're one of my clients, and they have... You know, it's a state-of-the-art chicken facility, and they've done a lot of automation. Because I, I was in packing plants, you know, in 1996 when I started with OSHA. And things, as you've said, have changed significantly for the better in most cases. And you go into a facility like that that is highly automated. I mean, there's still hundreds of employees on the lines, but they've automated uh, select parts of that process uh, to the better. It's really fascinating. Um, and, and I'm I'm interested to see how it goes forward because I know they will continue to automate that. Um, it, it is really remarkable, right? And uh, the the advent of 
artificial intelligence making the automation itself smarter is allowing for them to add, address more and more variations so even if things are not consistent every time, they can adjust and continue to function in an automated way. So I'm really excited about the productivity and the, and the efficiency and, more importantly, the safety uh, for people working in plants like that because it, it's, it's a tough job. No, it is very difficult. It's a tough job. Do you, um, well, first, do you happen to know Terry Stentz down at UNMC? No, I do not. So he's a, an industrial engineer, ergonomist. Um, he, ta- he talks, uh, or he researches um, off-shift, you know, issues. So if you're working second, third shift, extended shift, do you, do you have any, I, I loved your comment about applying some of those DOT regulations to the workplace, you know, inside the facility, that type of thing. Because I think without question, you know, the fatigue and those extended hours is one of the most uh, critical risk factors that we deal with. And I'm seeing all of my facilities pushing their people a little bit harder, a little bit further. Are there, are there ways to address that, I mean, that you're aware of? We have, we have to learn from what's going on in our environment. We have to learn how to audit our people, keep track of things to make improvements because people do burn out and we see it in a number of different industries because of the, either the shortage of talent or because demand has either become seasonal or dramatic. You know, for example, in healthcare, we're seeing the overload of healthcare in some of the states right now with the pandemic, okay? The hours that nurses are putting in right now is just almost unbelievable. I, I and, and I think about the the need for their service and the importance of their service and to have them uh, being pushed to the brink, it, it, it concerns me because yeah. it's tough on them and it's tough sure. potentially for their patients. What's funny, uh, the governor just announced a state of emergency for Nebraska for health care and put a moratorium on all um, elective surgeries elective surgery. because of, and what's funny is, you know, we have hours, to your point earlier, we have hours, very strict hour restrictions on driving but no hour restrictions in the medical community. Or, or, or anywhere else. If you're operating yeah. heavy equipment, uh, if you're operating uh, automated equipment, if you're working in a distribution center with uh, dangerous materials around, yeah, there, there is something that probably needs to be taken into account there. Mm-hmm. That is really interesting. Really interesting. How do you, uh, you know, uh, kind of a high-level question, it's, you know, we arm our students uh, with our supply chain degrees to, to be leaders in the supply chain community coming out. How do we emphasize safety in that realm? Like how do we get supply chain leadership to now start thinking about safety and, and not, I'm not saying get away from the numbers. The numbers are always going to rule, right. but how do we insert that element that, Hey, you also have to be a safety leader or Hey, let's get the safety leaders involved in those supply chain decisions as well. But what I try to do with, with our students and with, with our, my industry partners is we have to, we have to emphasize the well-being of our employees. And, and we have to take that into account to address one key issue that almost every industry faces, which is turnover. And if, if you can address the well-being of your employees, you're going to have an impact. And I've done the research on that. You can reduce turnover rates, okay? But that's taking it down to the, to the people that we've been talking about and making sure that they are engaged and happy on the job and that it's and that they're happy outside of the job you know this is overall subjective well-being that we're talking about here so they have to be happy where they're at what they're doing and and work is part of that but it's not the whole thing and so this whole social responsibility that industry needs to take on needs to take the whole person into account making sure that we uh, accommodate what it is that they're looking for both on the job and outside of the job 
one of the things that's driving that home at this point in time, again, is pandemic-driven. The number of people working at home has gone up some. You know, we've had more people working at home than we've had in the past. Okay, now it's time for some of them to come back, and it's been interesting. Companies have had mixed success on getting people to come back to the sure. office, and, uh, and with good reason. Uh, people want to come back or they don't, or the rest of their life they've figured out a function and they don't want to engage the office again. Others can't wait to get back to the office. So we, we have both kinds out there, you know, and so it's going to be interesting to watch, but we have to keep the well-being of both groups in, under consideration. We have to figure out how to make everybody engaged on the job and feel good about what they're doing and make them feel like they're having a meaningful experience on the job. It's funny you bring that up, working from home, because it, it's obviously it's a big news topic, working from home. People are more productive from home. Yet, you know, when you talk supply chain, the vast majority of people are not working from home, right? They're still out, you know, those critical industries, they, they never left the plants. They never left the job site. They, there, there are more boots on the ground than probably ever due to the shortages, you know, and, and for longer hours. It's such a, a, a minute part of the working force that gets the work from home, yet it seems to dominate the headlines. And we forget that there are still people <laughs> on that factory that never stopped. Yeah, you, you, you hit on a good point. The, the, the headlines in the news talk about work at home and efficiency and productivity and so on, but you're exactly right. It's a very small part of our workforce, and most of the people in our workforce across our country still went to work even during the pandemic and had to figure out how to function on the job, supply chain, production, whatever the case may be, healthcare. everybody still had to go to work. Um, so a majority of our workforce stayed in place, but we're talking about a sliver of work at home. It, it, it is a small part of the workforce. Mm-hmm. So what you've been referring to is commonly, ref- we call it culture. Probably we overuse that term. Yeah. It's become kind of a cliche, the workplace culture, but what you've just described. And retention is such a big deal with all of the employers that I work with, trying to keep, find and keep good workers, any workers to some degree, um, uh, that, that is a really interesting concept, and I think we overcomplicate it at times. I think sometimes we're looking for a, kind of a panacea, magic pill type cultural thing where it really just boils down to, as you mentioned earlier, just, you know, employee well-being, taking care of them, you know, not only from a safety standpoint, from, you know, psychological, mental, you know. Uh, yeah, and, and employees want to work for companies they feel good about. You know, this this whole corporate social responsibility, the brand of who you're working for means something. Can you work for for Valmont or First National Bank here? You know, that means something, okay? And so the, whoever they're working for, you know, you're part of their brand, they're part of yours. And so it's important that we take that into account. That's how we're going to create this culture that will be beneficial for everybody. And, and it's interesting you break up culture because I was just doing some work on this topic a few weeks ago. We talk about the culture of safety all the time in our training programs. We don't talk about the culture. We talk about the safety of quality, but we don't talk about the culture of safety. Mm-hmm. And that is a that is a new a new approach that we could we could borrow from the from the culture piece that we're trying to use to drive mm-hmm. quality programs. Absolutely, and use that to try to implement implement more safety programs. So I think there's a real opportunity to leverage some of the things that we've learned in the past and apply them to the concept of safety. Yeah, one of the things when, when Doug and I were coming up with our program, you know, uh, there's a, it's always been a, a safety program, like this add-on thing that make sure we have the safety guy, make sure we're complying with OSHA and checking all the boxes, but it was always like an add-on. 
and it was never a part of anything. And, and that's why we started calling it work safely because it's more of a mindset. Are we working safely? Not did we comply with the safety program? Right. And it's, and it's really important, too, that we get everybody on board with that and under that understand that safety is uh, part of it is doing the organization. Part of it is this culture we're talking about, the people that are working there. One of the things that we learned during the pandemic is that if you're sick, stay home. We've had too many people continue to go to work when they shouldn't be there and, and uh, inf- of impacting others of the workforce long before the pandemic. But now that sure. we... Uh, now sick that, is sick. sick. Yeah, exactly. And so, uh, but we, you know, just simply to staying home when you are sick so you're not affecting your coworkers, that's an important part of the culture that could come through a program like this. Mm-hmm. You know, taking care of your team, you know, being, being uh, you know, responsible to the people that you work with, and including the family family that you have at home or who you have outside of work. That, that's really fantastic stuff. Yeah. You know, and to Aaron's point, you know, we have always struggled. I've been doing this for about 35 years, and we've always struggled with the concept that we have a safety person who is responsible for safety. You know, he or she is going to keep me safe. They've got to do the paperwork. They've got to do the regulatory stuff. As you said, put up a poster, do some training once a year, whatever that might look like. But the, the idea of that executive champion that you talked about earlier and the fact that we typically don't have one person who's responsible for production. We don't have one person that's responsible for quality. You know, that's kind of a, that's a universal throughout the organization. I think that's a concept that we have to embrace at some point that safety has to be the same way. Yeah. And if we put safety in the context of, of overall well-being of the workforce for purposes of retention, we now have a means of, of establishing why we need that person, why we need leadership for safety. It's not just to meet the regulatory uh, obligations that we have. It's about moving our organization ahead and giving a culture of, of safety in place so that we do reduce turnover and keep the workforce that we want to use and, and keep them up to speed on what they need in order to do their job safely. Yeah, one of the things when Doug and I would go out and consult, we, we're, we're part of uh, a safety group, the Encore Safety Group, and, and we'll, they'll bring in people and we'll talk. And I'll get questions from the safety person. It's like, I can't get the leadership to understand this. I can't get them to understand that. And I always tell them, look, as a safety person, you have to speak differently to who you're talking to. Like if you're in front of the CFO, you have to say, here's why safety is going to save us money. Here's why these programs are going to help our bottom line. And when you talk to the COO, it's like, here's how we're not going to kill people and yada, yada, yada. And when you talk to HR, and it, here's how safety is going to make everybody happier on the job. You know, and and the, the, the context of the conversation when it comes, because safety is, to Doug's point, it's like, well, Doug takes care of that. He's over in the corner there. He takes care of that. And it's like, no, 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 man. I understand you're the CFO and you don't care, but here's why you need to care, right, right? from a dollars and cents perspective. And I, and I think it's important for the safety person to create the alliances necessary to, you know, amplify the message. You know, partnering with HR makes like a perfect starting point in my mind because the value of people, because we spend so much time recruiting and training and retraining that, you know, the retention is a big deal for HR. And they can put the numbers out there and say, look, if we can reduce our turnover by 2% or 5%, the savings are there. Now, if you have that partner with the safety person, now you have a message to go to the CFO with, okay? Now you have have a message that will mean something to him or her when you approach them about, about this idea of safety and elevating the importance of it, the need for more training programs, more safety audits, 
supplier safety programs, but you have to have you have to have a reason for that. And HR is a good starting point. And if you get finance on board at that point, if you get the CFO on board on point, now you have a message that you can start to you know, get this out across the entire organization, no matter how large it is. That's really incredible. Yeah, that's fantastic. You know, it's interesting. I had a guy in last week. My guest last week was Gary Bradshaw from uh, Conoco up in Blair, concrete equipment company. They build batching stations for con- concrete plants. And they have put a lot of effort into this retention piece through just through making the workplace a more engaging, inviting, inclusive environment. Um, and he said one of the things that they do now, rather than refer to their folks as employees, they just call them team members. And, and just, you know, the, you know, just the subtle psychology of that uh, seems to go a long way. It's really remarkable what, how, how little it takes to engage someone and, you know, get that, get that comfort, maybe the buy-in, whatever that is. Yeah, it, uh, it's hard to really realize sometimes the importance of culture, but even the change you're describing, that's a cultural thing, going from employee to team members or teammates. It, it makes a difference, and that is part of creating a different culture. And so it's the small changes like that that can lead to this overall change that the organizations are looking for, and it has to be something employees are looking for. If you can do that, then it's going to work. So it's, it's making all those small steps work together uh, because there's not one easy solution. As you mentioned earlier, too many, too many organizations are looking for the quick fix, get the check in the box, yep, we meet the obligations for our safety requirements or we hit the OSHA standard, but we've got to go beyond that. If we're in, in, we're going to do that to address things like retention and, and safety and savings and well-being. Now we have a better message for everybody to follow. That's fantastic. That's fantastic. Like <laughs> Can you talk a little bit about your, the leadership, the, the committee that you're using and sure. how they are guiding curriculum? or Are they participating in that? I mean, it makes yeah. perfect sense to me. It, it's, uh, it's been a really an interesting process. And, and Aaron uh, pointed out, Earlier, I was hired at UNO to create the supply chain management programs. When I arrived here seven years ago, we had no courses and no students. And so the f- I'm coming from industry, what's the first thing I do? I go out and interview 25 of the local businesses here and say, hey, look, we're looking to start a new supply chain program. What do we need to include in the curriculum? And uh, so I you know, I ended up with 26 learning outcomes that was common across all these interviews that I did. And so we created our program around those 26 learning outcomes and that's how we started the program. Uh, by the second year, then, I created the advisory board. Most of the people I interviewed are on that board. Now I have 43 members now. It's, it's a pretty large group, but they're a very active group. Um, certainly have opinions they're not afraid to voice. <laughs> in, <laughs> I, was telling, I was telling Doug a little bit about the group and the dynamic. Yeah. And, uh, so this is a group that's very candid about what, uh, what they think is right or wrong. And I'll be honest, I've put ideas out to them regularly. And they'll give me a thumbs up or thumbs down pretty easily. And it's not I'm a, sure. But it keeps us going forward in the right direction. I mean, it's and so when I start getting questions on how to get through the pandemic and those kinds of things, my board members, you know, we interact regularly. I meet with them all the time uh, to talk about special challenges that they have and so on. But what they do for us is they keep us updated on changes in curriculum. Are you changing how you're doing business, how you're developing this culture? How are you engaging your employees what does your supplier network look like? And they talk about changes they're making because how we're doing stuff is changing every year. And so they really keep us up to sure. speed. It's other than creating the 
supply chain program itself, the advisory board is probably the second most important thing that I created at UNO because they provide so much input and then they hire all of our students. Mm-hmm. I mean, they, absolutely. We, they hire our students in, uh, you know, I have, a, I have more jobs than students yet. So I'm pretty happy sure. about the that. internship programs. Amazing. Uh, that, yeah. that would be a great marketing tool to let everyone know that that job is out there waiting for you and you are going to be educated on the elements that they are looking for. That, that's pretty unique. I have a son that's a philosophy major. I don't know that they still, they do that necessarily in <laughs> philosophy. I'm not sure that we still do. And, uh, you know, and, and we need every type of major out there. I, I work in a very applied area because uh, that's where my career has been. We're also facing a severe shortage going forward. So, you know, I work with several of the professional associations like the Council of Supply Chain Management Professionals, and they're all looking at a shortage of probably 2 million graduates over the next five years just because of the turnover in the workplace. You know, demographics are driving most of that. But we're going to be short millions of graduates. What's your oldest student? I'm, I'm I'm looking for a new change in career at some point. That sounds really interesting to me. It's it's really interesting. So so I'm an old guy, and I still have a student or two every semester that's older than I am in, in class. That's so fantastic. It's, 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 a, it's always it's always interesting. It I really sounds fantastic. My oldest student so far, I think, was 72. Nice. Yeah. And so uh, that's, it, that's it was fantastic. interesting. Part of the problem is, and in, in our HR department suffers from this a little bit. You know, when, when you think supply chain, it just doesn't come across as a sexy major. Right. I want my, you know, I want the business administration, I want my MBA marketing, you know, all the, all the fun stuff. And, and that probably leads to some of the shortage that we're seeing as it's just, it's just one of those career fields. just like, oh, supply chain. I don't want to work in a warehouse. Right. right. That's immediately what people mm-hmm. think. I, I have a question, um, you know, to try to bring it full circle. When your initial interviews, when you first started, when you first got here, you said you had 25, 26 learning outcomes. Did safety ever come up in any of those conversations? Yes, yes, because I did have I did have uh, a couple of companies that were dealing with safety issues at the time, and they had had an event, and so yes, safety was it, it wasn't one of the top top categories, but it was there, mm-hmm. and it came in uh, lower than quality, but it was it was oh, right, but it mm-hmm. was but it was on the list, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it fell under the umbrella of employee retention. I mean, that's where this whole discussion started. Even even seven years ago, retention was a big deal. Mm-hmm. Even at that point in time, truck driver turnover for the long haul was still at about 100% a year. So it's just an amazing situation. That was right at the time I was leaving OSHA. So I, I'm sure I was involved with a few of those uh, <laughs> you may have been those involved. organizations. But um, that is remarkable. So is that a topic of discussion more so now? Oh, absolutely. And uh, we talk about in employee engagement, we talk about supplier certification and working conditions at your suppliers. And, and this is being integrated into your curriculum. It's in, it's in every course I teach. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. Thank you. I appreciate that. That's good news. For, for those of us on the safety side, that's good news that, you know, that managers, that people that are going to be involved in this, you know, the, not, I was going to say the periphery, but that's not accurate, that they're going to be intimately involved in this as leaders and managers, and uh, it's important that they are all advocates or, you know, yeah. disciples of this concept, I guess. So that's really fantastic. Yeah. We're running up on our hour. Do you have yeah. anything you want to ask or no, anything the, the, that you want to – this has been fascinating, and I really appreciate your time. And, um, yeah, do you, any closing comments on what you foresee or well, I just think where that, we're going? I, I just think that the topic of safety is – has been amplified with the pandemic and this is our opportunity to establish it permanently in the discussion and create it as 
part of the culture of more organizations. I think there's an opportunity to leverage just a horrible event that has occurred and use that as a means of, of moving uh, not only safety up the, the priority list, but finding those executive champions for safety. So we have follow through. It's, mm -hmm. I, my concern is two or three or five years from now that we start to let it fall off. Mm -hmm. And I, so I'm, I'm concerned about that. So it's more executive champions we can get on board right now, the right. better. So that's where I'm at right now. There's a, there is a need to, you know, walk intentionally and talk intentionally about safety for the next several years because of the pandemic. And we need to do sure. that. That's fantastic. Do you mind if I shamelessly steal that that uh, executive champion uh, phrase? You, no I problem. I love that. Yeah. I love that. That's going to be in my presentation next week. So. Oh, excellent. Glad I could help. <laughs> thank, thank you so much for coming. This has been fascinating. I, I actually have some um, some friends of my sons who are in supply chain management over at UNO. Um, they love it. They've been doing incredibly interesting internships. Over the summer, my boys are not. <laughs> no, I love I yeah. my boys. are That's great. But it sounds like you're preparing them really well for going out into the workplace. Yeah, we, we've had great success with the program. I've had great support at UNO. We're up to a couple, almost 200 students this year in, in the program starting at zero from seven years ago. So we, we're doing great. Our graduate program is ranked in the top 30 programs in North America. So we're happy about that from zero to top 30 in seven years. Wow. We're pretty happy about Fantastic. that. Fantastic. I've had great support from UNO. Good, good. Colleagues like Aaron are essential for helping us get things going. Well, well, he's being overlooked. Right thanks, thanks for teaching him something. <laughs> well, no, he, we, we appreciate he, it. He's one of our best instructors that keeps our program going. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, well, and he keeps, I mean, I say this somewhat jokingly because we mess around all the time, but the leadership piece and the leadership discussions what we talked about today, I think, have been the most popular element of people can only talk about lockout, tag out, or hazard communication so much. Uh, and, it, and it's almost meaningless if it's not within the context of good leadership or, you know, best principles, best practices. So I think this is really, I think, I feel like this is the piece that will move us further faster. So yeah. thank you for sharing all that. Awesome. Fantastic. Glad to, be, glad to be here today. Thanks yeah. for inviting me. Yeah, maybe we'll get to do it again sometime, hopefully. Sure. Okay. I appreciate it. All right, man. Any, any? I, I don't want to ruin it. I'm, we'll just let it sit. Good stuff. All right, guys. <laughs> well, thank you for listening, guys. Um, hope you have a nice weekend, and we will be back in touch next Friday. So take care. Uh, keep in mind why we're doing this, and we'll talk to you later. Bye-bye. Huda Media Production.